Movie Junkies and Cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 301 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Turkish Penal Code episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there happens to be an article of the Turkish Penal Code making it illegal to insult Turkey, the Turkish nation, or Turkish government institutions that took effect back in June of 2005. That article is Article 301. And with that wonderful little bit of Turkish penal code knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! So, question. Um, well, not actually, one question. Well, I guess I did mm. say question, so therefore that automatically implied. I have a question, but then I have a statement. My statement is, penile should not come right after Turkish. Turkish penile just sounds kind of wrong. And so uh, pretty much that means if we make fun of Turkey, we'll get sent to a Turkish prison. Is, is that is that what I'm getting from this? I believe if you're in Turkey and you do this, you, you cannot be extradited, especially as a foreign national. You cannot be extradited for it. But you can't do it in Turkey, especially as a Turkish national. And I would presume that if you did it elsewhere and were found out upon your return to Turkey, you would then be subsequently in lots of trouble. They do specify, though, expressions of thought intended to criticize shall not constitute a crime. So basically, if you have like a legitimate issue and you're merely respectfully addressing that issue, then theoretically that should not be a problem. But you're not allowed to publicly denigrate the Turkish nation or the military, the police, the state of the Turkish Republic, the Grand National Assembly of Turkey, or any of the judicial institutions of the state. Because if you do, it's uh, punishable by imprisonment from six months to two years. Hmm. Yay, First Amendment. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Have you had any desire to go to Turkey? Because even if I did, I probably wouldn't go now. I'd be worried. Maybe somebody in Turkey listened to all 301 episodes of our show, and maybe I made a comment about Turkey that they wouldn't find ah, too pleasing. Just tell them you meant butterball, and I'm sure that won't make it worse. Yes. No. Um. I. I in terms of historical value, like ancient Middle Kingdom historical value, I would actually love to visit Turkey. There's still some really cool stuff from that history of the Middle East that would be really cool to see. But I have uh, watched a, another movie for a cla- for one of my classes. It's an advanced composition class, and it's all about undocumented migration and it's not specifically referring to any kind of immigration issue in the united states it's literally worldwide undocumented migration is what the whole class is about so it tackles it from all sorts of different angles this week we actually had to watch a movie that very nearly we watched for the show uh because it made it to the final round of academy award selection 
before the actual nominations were made. It made it to the top 15. And then when they pull the five, that just didn't make it. It was a movie called Human Flow. And they really go into the worldwide issues regarding migrants and all of the refugees, the huge refugee crisis that we're having. And so when I see what they're doing in Turkey, it does not make me want to go to Turkey anymore, even for historical value. But I can also kind of empathize to a certain extent with what's happening with the Turkish government. They, they're they dealing with a refugee crisis. Like, we think refugee crisis, and we go, oh, those poor refugees, we should send aid to help them. They see the refugee crisis as, holy crap, we just increased our population in Turkey by 42%. And these are all people who are not Turkish citizens or Turkish nationals. And what do we do with these people? So... It's, I mean, yeah, it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. And so I'm having to do a paper on that that's due like in 45 hours or something. And, um, yeah, yeah. so it, it definitely makes it so that I'm not as anxious to visit Turkey anymore. At any rate. Well, well, we'll question then if you don't want to visit Turkey and spend any time there, would you possibly visit and sleep in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre gas station, which is apparently no. located right off of Highway 304 in Bastrop, Texas? No, I would not, mainly because I just don't think it'd be comfortable enough. I wouldn't get any sleep, not because I'm scared. I will, however, go to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house anytime you want, and we could go have lunch. You can actually go eat lunch there? It's a restaurant. It's been a restaurant for like 15 years. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Well, actually, maybe I didn't know that. Well, apparently, and I wanted to bring up this article because I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, it, we agreed no news, Tim. We have six movies. Let's go. But it ties in nicely with Turkey <laughs> because <laughs> okay. according to WideOpenCountry.com, sleep and eat barbecue at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre gas station. This here is written by Shannon Ratliff, and apparently, again, right off of Highway 304 in Bastrop, Texas, is the scariest gas station in pop culture history. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Gas Station, a Facebook landmark, has been restored to original quality. And the best part? You can sleep there if you want to. On October 8th, the owners held a grand reopening of the gas station. They added four creepy little cabins on the property so true Texas Chainsaw fans can spend a night or two there, going absolutely insane with excitement or dread. Who knows? They also offer barbecue. There's a sign out front that says, We Slaughter Barbecue. Well, you did say that you're reading there that it says it's been restored to its original luster. So does that mean that there's kind of, that there's this awkward, overweight dude in a wheelchair ready to serve you? Or just get in your way constantly and annoy you? Ready to serve you, as in your own meat? Oh, wouldn't that? Maybe. That's what freaks me out in, in horror movies. Is when, is when like you, it was when like the character wakes up, like they get knocked out and they wake up. And it turns out like you're being force fed part of your brain or part of their body meat. Oh, it's kind of like in the Hannibal movie, the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, when sure. Ray Liotta is at that yeah. dinner table and Hannibal Lecter is eating from his brain like it's a little fun dude. And like feeds him his own brain is like, yeah, that's hilarious. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, okay, so is there like a creepy place that it could be within a movie, even a movie locale that would just freak you out? I personally don't think... Th- uh, okay, I-, I know Johnny and I have gone over this a million times. I don't know, we've talked about it before as well. But for me, the one horror movie that has creeped me out all these years and will always creep me out is Candyman. I get it. It's not... I mean, it's it's great 90s horror, but it hasn't necessarily aged spectacularly well. But there's a reason why it has such a wonderful cult following. It's got a great story to tell. And part of that story is that hook. It's that 90s modern version of the Bloody Mary hook where you look into a mirror and you say Candyman five times. Well, they had this one area where they're in this, uh, they're in a dilapidated area. I think it's in Chicago or Detroit. And they're in this building and there is a picture. It's all graffiti and everything is about Candyman. And even one of them has a hole in the brick wall and it's the Candyman's face and the hole makes his mouth and they're like bees going into it or whatever. And I do not think that I could stay in that building overnight. It would definitely be Ghost and Mr. Chicken all up in this piece, and I would be Mr. Chicken. I would be the fat, tall version of Don Knotts. Like, <laughs> and I don't think I, I don't think I would make it. Attaboy, Wilbur! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is funny. Uh, but yeah, if you want to check out this little article I read from, it is again via WideOpenCountry.com. Sleep and eat barbecue at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre gas station, written by Shannon Ratliff. Oh, shit. And it looked like it actually came out two years ago. So this is not even news. (laughs) And the funny thing is, is that I was looking at this earlier and and, and whenever you were talking about the restaurant, the Texas Chainsaw, like I was thinking about like, man, I think we talked about that. But I I, actually what turns out, I think we were actually talking about this. So it was a retread of this is like the House of Dracula retreading on the House of Frankenstein but in slaughterhouse, barbecue, gas station, hotel form. I can dig it. Well, we have got an action-packed show for you. We went, like, way over time last week, and Tim was like, oh, I'm going to cut some stuff out. But we had such a good discussion. I was really particularly proud of that episode. And I told Tim, I was like, no, man, let it go. We haven't had a really good episode like that in a long time. And so I just want to say Tim did a fantastic job of the editing because – he did make some cuts because obviously it's it was editing, but even with the stuff that was put back in and everything, man, it still brought it back up to the same time limit that we talked. So it was a really good show, and I just want to let y'all know, Tim is the chief editor. I very rarely do much of anything other than show up and occasionally pay for like server time or something. So and say big words Tim, and say big words. Yes, big big word. Read me. And I, <laughs> big word, me read. And, and I, uh, many, 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 many small time make big time. And so, <laughs> I don't know why I just went Kevin from the office on that, but okay. And he also did a really good job on our infographic for the show. I just wanted to say that. So we wanted to make sure to give you a heads up. So we do not have any real news to talk about this week. 
Next week, we will be doing horror-related news for a very special double episode of our Halloween Horror Cast. We're breaking it up. It's going to be part one and part two. And so we'll have our part one next week, obviously, and that is going to have horror-related news. And because of that, we've got six big films to get to, and we're going to do that now with the movies. Right, Tim? Yes, sir. Then here we go, folks. It's... The movie Alright, so we have three movies from the theater, and then we have three movies for classic werewolf-esque cinema. And technically we have Four Halloween-ish movies because we one of the new movies from the theaters is Goosebumps too. So where do you want to? How do you want to do this, Tim? Do we want to one and then the other? Do you want to do the theater movies first, then the classic movies, or classic movies first, then the theater movie? How do you want to do all this? Let's do the theater movies first. And I think we ought to start oh, off with the one theater movie I did not get a chance to see, but it sounds like I dodged a bullet because I don't have a child. <laughs> He did. A, he didn't dodge a bullet. He put me in front of the gun. That's that's what he did. See, it's not dodging a bullet when I when I have to go and watch the movie, and it's <laughs> terrible. And I didn't. And it turns out I didn't have to go watch the movie. Uh, all right, here we go. Goosebumps to Haunted Halloween. Hey kids! Wow, you've got quite a spread here. Is that too much? No. Yes. Stand down, Greg. Look at this. A mysterious disturbance recently took place in the town of Madison, Delaware. Creatures come alive. In the original manuscripts of R.L. Stein. The book. What book? It's a Goosebumps book. It's locked. Oh, man. What did you do? It's time to make Halloween last forever. <laughs> Straight. We're living a goosebump story right now. I hear it's a real scream. Halloween is alive. I know. It's my favorite holiday, too. You're gonna need some serious therapy after this. That book is the only thing we have to end this. Let's go. Someone's gonna win a costume contest. Goosebumps. Haunted Halloween. All right. It is a 2018 American horror comedy film directed by Ari Sandel. It's written by Rob Lieber. From a story by Lieber and Darren Lemke, this, of course, is a sequel to 2015's Goosebumps and based, obviously, on the R.L. Stein series. Now, this one stars Wendy McClendon Covey, uh, Madison Eisman, Jeremy Ray Taylor, Khalil Harris, Chris Parnell, and Ken Jeong with Jack Black coming back in his dual roles as Slappy and R.L. Stein from the first film. This is uh, a weird setup here. This movie is supposed to be completely separate from the original film, and yet it's supposed to have acknowledged the events of the first film. And it's taking place in what theoretically would be like R.L. Stein's not necessarily hometown, but where he... first started writing and we have these 
kids, Sonny Quinn and Sam Carter, they're best friends, and they're starting a junk business together called the Junk Bros, or the Junk Brothers. Sarah is Sonny's older sister, and then Sam's dad is going out of town, and so he is staying with Sarah and Sonny, and then, of course, their, their mom. Now, they go into this old house where they discover the lost manuscript Haunted Halloween of R.L. Stein. And just like in the first movie, it is a book, the same book with the latch and the key written by the magic typewriter, etc., etc. So these kids, of course, don't know any of that. They're just rummaging through this old house looking for junk to sell. And they bust open the book. And, of course, Slappy comes to life, or at least this version of Slappy from this particular novel. And shenanigans ensue. This movie would have been, honestly, I think this movie should have been the first movie in the franchise. Because I think it does a really good job of introducing the concepts that make the the original first movie so good. And I think that they, but if this movie had been first, there's no way there would have been a sequel, which would have been the good movie that we had gotten. This movie is great for kids. I think it is a perfectly fantastic kids movie, but it is not in any way, shape or form for adults. And that is the problem with a movie like this. It's like they completely forgot everything that made the first movie so good and then just decided to make it wacky kid humor but they put like actors you know you know ken jong and wendy mcclendon covey and chris parnell you see these people and you're like holy crap what are they doing in this piece of shit film and i don't know maybe they just couldn't get any other work this week i i i can't tell you maybe life's been rough since the hangover uh for ken jong you know community's gone so there's not that anymore who knows? I'm not I'm not really sure what the deal is there. And right, Chris Parnell, he's not doing much with, with without uh Rick and Morty, I suppose. So maybe he needed to get back in there. He's not I mean 30 Rock's been off the air for like eight years. I I just don't understand why they have good comedic actors and actresses in this movie when there's nothing funny happening that's worth them being there. Jack Black does, again, have the dual roles. He's slappy. He voices slappy. And it's just, to the nth degree, annoying. It's not as sinister as it was the first time. And so it goes from being scary to being stupid. And I really think that they had a good handle on the scary in the first Goosebumps movie. And you got Jack Black, so he does return as R.L. Stein. Of course, he doesn't say that he's R.L. Stein because I'm not really sure why. It doesn't really make sense, but he is the president of his own fan club, and and but the fan club guy is oh, it's like Ralph L. Sipperstein or something like that. So it's still R.L. I mean, you can completely see through it. He does eventually show up on screen for about four minutes at the end of the movie. And that part's good. Like, when he actually decides to show up, it is halfway decent again. But four movie, four minutes is not worth the other 86. I give this movie two stars. Your kids will love it. Do not waste your time with it. Two stars. 
I give this movie an N.A. for obvious reasons, <laughs> that being I didn't go see it, and I'm glad I did not. You should be very glad that you did not see this movie. Don't you wish you, you made your daughter to go, you know, Honestly, to go see Honestly, I it? really do. I really and truly wish I had drugged their asses to this movie because this one wasn't even scary. Like, it literally was not remotely scary. It was goofy, silly, and they probably would have been like, oh, jumps and stuff like that. But the first one was legitimately creepy. and But I didn't think it was overly done. I thought it was great scare content for the age group. But, I mean, my oldest daughter went and saw it with me, and she refused to see this one. So, yeah, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, I'm glad that we're done with that. Where do you want to go from here, sir? All right, so which movie did you like the least between First Man and... First Man. First Man. Hands down, First Man. Okay. Uh, why don't we do First Man next? <laughs> you heard him, folks. First Man. Are you sure? Yeah. Be an adventure. First Man to walk on the moon. That'd be something. We've chosen a job so difficult requiring so many technological developments. We're gonna have to start from scratch. Only after we master these tasks do we consider trying to land on the moon. Neil, if this flight is successful, you'll go down in history. What kind of thoughts do you have about that? We're planning on the flight being successful. Damn, that is a big mother. It'll go up like a half kiloton A-bomb if it blows. The vehicle's not safe. We need to fail down here so we don't fail up there. This isn't just another trip, Neil. You're not just going to work. Do you think you're coming back? There are risks, but we have every intention of coming back. Somebody got a Swiss Army knife. Swiss Army knife? Are you kidding me? Here we go. Six. Five, four, three, two. Do you question whether the program's worth the cost in money and in lives? You're down here and you look up and you don't think about it too much, but space exploration changes your perception. And it allows us to see things that we should have seen a long time ago. We have serious problems. We've got this under control. You're a bunch of boys. You don't have anything under control. First Man, 2018 American biographical drama film directed by Damien Chazelle, written by Josh Singer, based on the book First Man, The Life of Neil A. Armstrong by James R. Hansen. Film stars Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong, alongside Claire Foy, Jason Clark, Kyle Chandler, Corey Stoll, Sierra Hines, Christopher Abbott, Patrick Fugit, and Lucas Haas, following the years leading up to the Apollo 11 mission to the moon in 1969. Steven Spielberg, by the way, is an executive producer. I will say I was the first man out of the theater when this movie was over. All right. I, I'm not trying to bash on this movie, guys. It starts off in 1961 and shows Neil Armstrong piloting an X-15. And you are... Given the extreme nature of this guy's cool, I mean, the, the, everything that could go wrong here, and he is literally not in just the stratosphere. He's like up in the ionosphere, whatever's the higher one. I can't remember if it's the stratosphere or the ionosphere. What, whatever the highest one is, he is basically suborbit. And 
shit's going wrong with this experimental aircraft. And it's showing you his cool. So you get a really good picture in the first five minutes of what this guy is capable of. And then, of course, they jump back and you can see his family life. And he kind of has this really nice family life. It's very simple. And yet you can see he is a very fully devoted dad. Tragedy strikes and upends everything that he knows and loves. And yet he decides he wants to carry on and move into the space program, which he does. And it literally takes you through the training. It takes you through the marital strain. It takes you through the family and the heartbreak and the camaraderie within the program. And, of course, culminates with the moon landing. Not much to really spoil in this aspect. I mean, the thing is literally called First Man. This movie suffers from the jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none issue. This movie is trying to do too many different things, and it can't decide what it is that it wants to be. And so you can't really get a good handle on what's happening in the movie. You get this overwhelming sense of drive and determination, but stoic but it's very stoic. And I don't mean in the, in the philosophic manner of stoicism. I mean true stoicism, true stoic style that is Neil Armstrong, which is interesting because most of the things that you read or see about him, especially if with the only other movie that you have to go on being the right stuff, he's more choir boy, he's a little bit more outgoing in that in that version. This, of course, is based on just him, and so it's probably a little bit more true to life in that regard. But with this driving stoicism and this calm determination that makes up the life and style of Neil Armstrong, it doesn't, it makes it more awkward to be, like you're literally awkwardly trying to hang out with this guy. And don't get me wrong, to a certain extent, that might be what Chazelle is going for. And if so, then congratulations, he made it. But at 141 minutes, that's not something you want to do, especially when you're trying to bounce it off this family dynamic at home where Claire Foy is playing his wife, Janet. And you don't ever really see them connect. And so... Half the time, they do these long, drawn-out, again, quiet scenes where they're just kind of staring at each other. It's like, whose side are either of you on? Is this a marriage, or is this a partnership, or is this two people who somehow got stuck together and don't realize how or why they did? And so this feeling kind of pervasive. So so that's not really going anywhere. And you don't feel it moving forward, but you don't feel it pulling back either. You go into the training stuff. And so you get a real good idea, like a true-to-life version of what is happening and what would have been experienced by these guys. Okay, that's cool. But then again, it just kind of drops back and doesn't really push the envelope there either. We get into the actual lunar missions, and you actually get this one. They they decide in the first sequence that they're taking off. I want to say this is like Apollo 4-ish. And they're going up basically to determine whether or not you can have part of your, part of your jettison 
already in orbit and then connect with it. So they've already got the two things going up. So they've got two simultaneous rocket launches going up. And you are going to experience this with the astronauts in the capsule. So you get to actually experience it's quiet. That is all non-diegetic sound. And you are simply experiencing spaceflight. Okay. This thing goes on for about four and a half minutes. Now, again, because this means how long it's going to take. You get the, you get to feel the trajectory of the rocket as it pulls back and you're kind of in their perspective. So you feel yourself kind of tilted back as they would have been tilting back. Everything's vibrating, just completely vibrating. And it's confusing and it's overwhelming. And of course, you've never trained for it. So it's completely disorienting for you. And yet these guys are handling it like the pros they are. So they do that. And and you kind of feel like you're getting a feel for it. Then they go back and kind of make it movie again. And you're experiencing the rest of the mission as it goes. And the things that go wrong in the mission. And then it juts back to being this realistic issue. So you... So just when you are getting used to it being, okay, this is real, this is happening, it kind of goes back into movie mode, but then it jolts you right back into reality, and the issues they're having in this particular space flight, you get to experience again. Okay, but now, now that you've broken that, and when you're putting, it back, putting us back in it, it feels like it's taking too long. And everything feels like it's taking too long. So then, fast forward to Apollo 11, they do it again. They sit there and they put you in there. But now, oh, no, now you get the full movie treatment. So you're getting sweeping cinematography shots. You're getting the actual orchestration. You're getting the full score behind it. And they're doing the liftoff and they're going up into space and everything. So just when you think you've got a handle on what it is that this movie's trying to do, you don't. And it tries to do something else. Goes back up. We get into space. They do a good job of making you feel that the nothingness of space. We get to the moon landing. And again, it's all just kind of like this stretch it out. How long can we stretch this out before we finally give you what you want, which is getting them on the moon? And we get to the end of the movie. We're finally at the end of the movie. And again, not really much to spoil because that's the point of the movie is first man on the moon. We get it. And so he's got to come back. And the climax of the film, you actually think, is him getting onto the moon. That's actually not the climax of the movie. The climax of the movie is Janet making Neil understand that despite all of the pressure on him from NASA and everything that's going on, he still has a family and he still has to be the dad that he set out to be. And they have this huge emotional scene. And you, and, and again, so well, but then, but then that stops and it's like, it's never really resolved. We get back to it and the movie literally closes with them just staring at each other. Now there's this kind of, I, I won't spoil this part because I guess it's supposed to make the scene worthwhile. But there is something there that's supposed to be a gesture. And maybe it's supposed to be a gesture to the audience as much as it's supposed to be a gesture between the characters and the film. But for me, I just kind of like, well, 
But what did that even mean? It, and again, it just felt like it wasn't connecting the way that it should. It's trying to do all these different things. Historical documentary, historical drama, historical biopic, real true drama, sadness, tragedy, triumph. And yet it can't ever really get there and hold you. And at two hours and 20 minutes, I was done well before that mark. Two stars. I did not like this movie. I realize I am definitely in the minority on this. It's not because there aren't things to like. And it's not because there aren't things that aren't well acted or anything like that. But none of them come together to give you a great movie. And now that I've just peed <laughs> in his Cheerios, Tim will come in and tell you, no, no, Matt, it's okay. Go get some sleep. Two questions. Did you see yeah. the movie in IMAX? And did you no. were you offended by them not showing Neil Armstrong plant the American flag like Trump was apparently offended that the movie was not patriotic enough i was not offended by it being left out not i mean i don't think that that's something that's worth getting offended for mainly because it's the united states it's fucking nasa every rocket had the flag on it and had United States on it. And they're in the fucking United States and everybody's saying Houston and, and Cape. So we know, I mean, it's one of those things that we already know it's the United. So I'm not, I, I'm not offended by that. I think you, I think it's the height of insecurity to simply say, I am just offended, but I do think it's a cop out to not have done it. I, I'm not sure exactly what the, what their point was behind not doing it, but any point they have to say that, I, I don't think it was like some kind of like twirling of the evil mustache political dig, but there was no reason to not put it there. Yeah. I don't know that they were being petty about it, but I don't necessarily buy into any other high-minded, well, this was one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It was all about, ah, fuck, bullshit. You didn't put it in because you didn't want to put it in. And at least just own up to that. That's how I feel. I'm not offended. It didn't bother me really at all because it, to me it felt like, A, it was obvious that, you know, it's a given. Neil Armstrong planted the flag. But the movie wasn't focusing on that. And ultimately, Correct. that's what I bothered me about the movie, what it actually chose to focus on, on Neil Armstrong being distant, you know, and you're right, he does kind of come across as like an, a one-dimensional character. He's very steely, like, I, was he actually like a steely guy? A steely Armstrong? <laughs> I actually went, because I'm like, I don't remember this guy. I mean, it's like, I don't think the right stuff got it so fucking wrong. And so I went back. I started looking into Neil Armstrong. He's not as stoic as he is portrayed in this movie. And and he, at least as near as I can tell, some Wikipedia stuff, some biographical stuff online that I've read, searching my college library for about five minutes, 
I'm not going to say it's it. Sit there and say I did in-depth research when I didn't. So like about five minutes, probably 20 minutes of looking this guy up. He wasn't so single-mindedly focused on his tragedy. I'm trying not to spoil every aspect. You know, give give the people something to see. Um, but I mean, he 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 did eschew. There's your there's your five dollar word for the episode. He did eschew the public and the notoriety of his event, and instead chose to use any draw that he had to point towards NASA and any other kind of space education and exploration that he could. And I I don't want to spoil anything because the movie only made $15, $18 million over the weekend, so I'm pretty sure if you're listening to this, you haven't even seen the movie. I have a big issue with coming up with emotional moments for biographical movies out of thin air. And what happens at the end of the movie, and it pertains to the items, or really an item, that Neil Armstrong, Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Gosling, oh shit, that would have been a totally different movie if Ryan Reynolds played Neil Armstrong, if Ryan, the, the Ryan Gosling's Neil Armstrong, uh, the item he chose to bring with him to the moon was not true to begin with, he actually did some other douchey things. He brought like his college fraternity pen and he didn't even bring stuff from like his sons to leave on the moon. But what he did chose to bring in the movie was such like a calculated pull at the tug at the heartstrings moment that it just really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So you're saying that this guy had so much affection for his daughter that he was just kind of an asshole to his, you know, to his son and to his wife. Like, I didn't really think about it beforehand, but you're absolutely right. You never really see a connection between the two of them, just him being distant. Even at the beginning of the movie, when they were setting up the death of his daughter, you really didn't see the camaraderie between a husband and wife and then the reason for her to be so supported uh, supportive of him, you know, it would have made more sense to to understand the connection between the two. Uh, because I really liked Claire Foy in this movie. I I liked how her character was written, and I like how liked how her character was portrayed. Uh, because she believed in her husband, she knew he was doing something right. You know, he wasn't doing anything crazy. You know, behind her back, like he was doing something for his country, and she supported that. But yet. He was also treating her and his kid, do you have one son or two, one son or whatever, pretty shitty. Sons. Sons, okay. And he was kind of treating his other sons kind of kind of shitty. I mean, there's like moments, little montages where you see him playing with them and kind of having a good time, but that's kind of it. Ultimately, though, what bothered me, and the reason why I give it a 3.5 out of 5, is how the film was shot. I liked the cinematography, I liked uh, the colors to the film, I liked the, uh, the, the set dressings and costumes and all that. When I actually saw a wide-angle shot, it felt like I was in that place. And they utilize Michael Mann-esque or Paul Greengrass-esque 
framing of of these certain shots where the camera is like mid-range or close up and it's moving around constantly. I get it. When they're utilizing that in the shuttle during the the moon mission or anything like that when they're in a cockpit because they're trying to capture the claustrophobia that the pilots felt or the astronauts I should say. But when you're just doing like the domestic stuff, the training, them in NASA, even at home, I mean, man, I, it bothered, bugged me the most when it was between him and his wife or the kids and, you know, there's some drama going on. They do that really close up stuff and the camera just kind of shakes and you never get to sit there and truly, truly become lost in that moment because you're being so damn distracted by the camera trying to create a false feeling within the audience purposefully establish drama, or forcibly establish drama, I should say. I saw it in IMAX, had great sound, and still the close-up shakiness bothered me watching it in IMAX. I also saw it at 11 o'clock at night, and I didn't fall asleep, although I got pretty tired because the movie did not have to be 2 hours and 20 minutes, given the type of ground that it covered. 3.5 out of 5, that brings it to an SLS cast score of 2.75, and I think that's a fitting rating. <laughs> oh, good. It's nice when it's nice when we can come together on these things. <laughs> All right, well, then that is going to leave us with Bad Times at the El Royale. First time at the El Royale? You have the option to stay in either California or Nevada. I always want to stay in the honeymoon suite, even though I'm not currently on my honeymoon. <laughs> what are you doing out here? I got a job singing in Reno tomorrow. Don't pay nothing, but uh, singing, singing. <laughs> this is not a place for a priest, Father. You shouldn't be here. It's a little too quiet in here. It gives me the willies. You're just too good to be true. Sir? We have a problem. You watch me? I only watch who they tell me to watch. Who's they? Management. Did you think you could just take this mine and I wouldn't come a hunt? No, I figured you would. And I'd be ready when you did. Are you lost, Father? Can I confess something to you? I'm not really a priest. It's a game. It all starts with a simple choice. Would you mind opening the door? No, I ain't gonna do that. Which side are you on? Right, wrong, God or no God? Red or black? I've done horrible things. So's everybody. Shit happens. Get the whiskey. Right, we got a 2018 American neo-noir thriller film written, produced, and directed by Drew Goddard. Film stars Jeff Bridges, Cynthia Erivo, Dakota Johnson, John Hamm, Kaylee uh, Spaney, Lewis Pullman, Nick Offerman, and Chris Hemsworth. This movie is set in 1969 and follows six strangers who are each hiding dark secrets as they come to head one night in a shady hotel on the California-Nevada border. Well, let's talk. Let's just, let's just talk about this movie. 
I'm going to just up front four stars. I really like this movie. I think there's a lot of things that are inventive about the movie. Mainly, they nailed the look. You think 1969. You think fading 60s. You, you think coming into the 70s. And man, did they nail the look. You look at the characters. And on the surface, all the characters also very intriguing characters. And you, and you just gotta love the characters. The, the shells that make these characters. Also great. You look at the actors and actresses that they pulled. I mean, the caliber here is ridiculous. Also great. Absolutely great. But then we pull, we, we, we pull back that veneer. Let's, let's pull back the veneer. Let's take a look at the nuts and bolts of these characters and the setting. And it starts to lose its luster. Much like the hidden, pervy side of this hotel that is ultimately exposed in the film, very, very early on, within the within the first twenty minutes, twenty minutes. But but what what's the film about? I already said. Oh, you did. I did. Oh wow! I think I literally zoned out. It, yeah, it's a, it's a plot that follows six strangers who are each hiding dark secrets that come to head one night in a shady hotel on the California Nevada border. And I don't want to get into any more than that because getting into any more than that is like it, 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 I feel would really spoil the movie. And I don't want to spoil the movie because I think it's worth watching. I, I think it's worth watching. But when you peel back that veneer and you look into the nuts and bolts of the scenery, it's, it's, resting so much on the shoulders of these actors and actresses, which, I mean, strictly speaking, that's what every movie's doing. But a lot of times, when you get a truly great movie, everything is coming together. You've got great content and a great look and great actors and actresses who are pulling it all together. They're taking this great veneer and then resting it on the shoulders because when you peel it back, you're left with a thriller noir version of Clue set in 1969. And I don't know about you, but I like my... Thriller Noir Clue set in 1969 to be set back in 1954 and be funny. People can still die, but make it funny. This, it's almost like this movie tried to be Pulp Fiction and came out looking like Clue. Both movies are really good. In my opinion, maybe you might not like Pulp Fiction or Clue for some reason, but both of these movies are fantastic for me. But the melding isn't where it needs to be at all. And the chief problem is that it rests 
so much on the performances that when the performances run into the bad story elements, like cars that won't start, especially when the fucking characters see that the goddamn cars won't start anyway, but let's just make it so that we can do that, so that we can come up with some exposition. Okay. Oh, and let's do it in the rain. It hurts this movie so much when it does things like that. But it still looks great doing it. With great one-dimensional characters. How often do you find yourself saying that? This is a one-dimensional character, and yet it's great. It. All I can say is... Thank God they got the cast that they got. Because had they not gotten the cast that they got, this movie would have sucked. I also feel it's a little too long, so pacing issues run into it. But I'll be damned if I didn't enjoy myself anyway. Four stars. What do you got there, Tim? I don't think I could agree with you more. Yeah, I mean, the characters are what makes this movie, as well as its look. It's very unique. It's it's fun. Um, I enjoyed the music, and a lot of the music is in-movie, as in there's a jukebox that's like a main feature in the lobby of the hotel, and every once in a while, a character will play a song. I like the film. However, what bothered me, I really love a good two-hour-plus movie. And this had so much potential to be a fantastic two-hour-plus long movie. Uh, It's just I didn't care for the non-linear structure that the story was told because some of the characters I really didn't care so much about. And I really didn't care about learning certain aspects, about certain aspects of these characters. And right when, like, a flashback would happen, the movie would be, or the story would be getting to a point where it's like, this movie's going to go into the the next gear. It's going to go up a notch, you know? But then it has to reset itself and kind of, like, reestablish that feeling after returning back from that that flashback or telling the story from another point of view or, 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 or showing the audience the scene from a different point of view, I thought a lot of that was kind of unnecessary. Maybe if they did that once or twice and it encompassed multiple characters instead of one, I, I thought maybe that would probably work the best. But damn, these characters are wonderful and the performances are so, so, so good. Uh, The only other thing that I will say about this film is that you should stay away from the trailers. Because if you've seen the trailers, especially the second one, the second trailer spoils a lot more. I went and took my more significant other to Beyond Fest, uh, which is a movie festival around this time that happens at the... Egyptian theater in Hollywood, I took her to go see the West Coast premiere of Bad Times at the El Royale, and I showed her the first trailer once or twice before, so she's already seen it. But there were a couple things that happened in the trailer, and I've seen it multiple times because I just love the trailer, that worked great. There are like a couple shots and moments from the movie that works great in the trailer, but it's built up in, in a certain way in the movie that would have been so much more effective if 
I had no idea that it was coming because I remember certain shots and moments and beats in the trailer that I had a feeling it was going to pop up sooner rather than later. That can also be said about a particular character, one particular character that shows up in the last act of the film. I don't think you probably would have known he was in it unless you've seen trailers. The less you know about his performance will make it that much more rewarding when you get to that character because there's some pretty good buildup. And I think that it goes to show you that the movie itself in the writing department is kind of weak. I loved Cabin in the Woods, written and directed by Drew Goddard, who wrote and directed Bad Times at the El Royale. But Cabin in the Woods, it starts off like your run-of-the-mill teen horror slasher flick, but then it fucking takes a hard right turn and becomes something totally different. It connected in such a great way that it just, it was, I mean, I don't want to say blew me away, but it was just very surprising and it was super enjoyable and it was cool and it was something fresh and exciting. I was expecting that with this film because especially the first trailer, you're, you think, oh no, there's something going on. I wasn't expecting like a government facade, uh, you know, like like a government thing happening underneath the hotel or whatever, but I was expecting a little more than what it actually turned out to be, because I thought it was quite obvious. So stay away from the trailers, <laughs> go into this movie as blindly as possible, I'm giving it a four as well, go and have a good time. Now that we're done with that, let's get into... And now we are ready to go into our classic horror movies. Where would you like to start on those, sir? Well, we gotta go, uh... In chronological order, let's start off with House of Dracula. I am Count Dracula. You see before you a man who has lived for centuries, kept alive by the blood of innocent people. When the full moon rises, I turn into a werewolf with only one desire, to kill. I tried to perform the miracle of science and failed. My blood is contaminated with the blood of Dracula. All right, 1945 American monster crossover horror film released by Universal Pictures. This is actually a direct sequel to House of Frankenstein and carries on the theme of combining Frankenstein's monster... Uh, played by Glenn Strange this time, who you may know from Gunsmoke. He, that was his other big role in, in life. He was on TV's Gunsmoke. He was the bartender. Count Dracula, played by John Carradine, who you may or may not know if you're heavily into classic cinema, but he is actually the father of Keith and David and Robert. Keith, David, and Robert Carradine. Baron, I didn't hear you come in. Please go on. You like it? It breathes the spirit of the night. They played it the evening we met at the concert. I'd forgotten until I saw you again. Perhaps I wanted you to remember. 
never heard this music before, yet I'm playing it. You're creating it. For me. It frightens me. It's beautiful. It's the music of the world from which I come. It makes me see strange things. People are dead, yet they're alive. Mine is a world without material needs. It calls to me, but I'm afraid. The fear will pass as the music becomes fixed in your mind. It will make you long to be there. That's cool, and he's and then of course the Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr. Now, this is one of the last movies that feature this combination of characters. But basically, we have Count Dracula coming to see Doctor Franz Eidelman, and again, when you okay, so this movie was touted. I guess I, I need to jump in here and say this, much like House of Frankenstein. House of Dracula touts five, count them five, movie monsters because they're not just counting Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, and the Wolfman. They're counting the Mad Doctor as a monster, and they're counting the Hunchback again. Just like, just like in, I, was, I, I, I gotta feel, I gotta say this, this feels, at the very least, disingenuous, especially when we get to the Hunchback, because. Now you're reaching for artistic ways of trying to say monster. Just, unless they're not doing anything that is explicitly monsterish, like killing people and stuff like that, don't call them monsters, because you're trying to combine different kinds of ideas. And it doesn't work in a movie like this. Now, this movie actually Wait, wait, so you're is... saying hunchbacks and midgets aren't monsters? Gypsies aren't evil witches? Hey, I, I don't know. Maybe only if they come from Turkey. I have no idea. But <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. That's what we do here. And yet, despite that, I, I actually like this movie. I, I Believe it or not, I actually, I don't know. Maybe I was just in a better mood overall when it came to this one. Um, I, I like this. I actually like this one. I like the way that they came up with everything, mainly because I liked the plot. The plot of this one, it's like they really tried to put a little bit more thought into it. They give interesting reasons for bringing everyone here to see Onslow Stevens is our evil doctor who doesn't start off that way mind you dr franz eidelman is a doctor who is basically researching this plant but also at the same time is willing to take in anyone that he can in order to prove his theories and so here comes baron latos uh again count dracula played by carradine and he's like I i've got to find a cure for vampirism and dr eidelman's like sure why not He's got a plant, the Clavaria Formosa, whose spores have the ability to reshape bone. And it's this, this is the magic plant that they have. And then, of course, Lawrence Talbot comes back again, again, Lon Chaney Jr., and he wants to get cured of his lycanthropy, right? He doesn't want to be the Wolfman. And, oh, man, Eidelman's got this cure. I know he does. Eidelman says, sure, man, I'll help you. Now, the one thing that this film does that, I mean, 
I guess, strictly speaking, it was introduced as a plot device in House Frankenstein. But in House Dracula, it is, and also Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, it really becomes the plot device. Is anytime they need to do something in the movie, quick, let's give us the Wolfman. The Wolfman's unpredictable and crazy. It's like the Incredible Hulk or Animal from The Muppet Show. And you get... You you use that as a means to get you to where you need to go so that things can go wrong and we can advance our plot. But it makes sense. They they actually have people who are working together to try and get rid of these issues. And yes, Wolfman kind of fucks it up, but they still end up working through things and trying to work around it so that they can move forward and it's really just the sinister actions of dracula by the end of it that that really give us the finale of the movie and it's nice because it actually makes dracula look like someone who on the one hand does want to change but but in the process kind of realizes that there's just no way for him to exist without being evil. And the switch that happens in the movie, spoiler alert, sorry, I don't know, I just it's it's 73 years old. I don't feel like I'm spoiling it for you. Is he's about to receive a blood transfusion that he knows is going to kill him and so he reverses the blood transfusion so that instead of him getting the blood that could kill him, he gives his blood to Eidelman. And now he creates the Mad Monster. And yet still Dracula meets his demise. I really like the way, I just like the plot of this movie. It makes it so much more palatable. And I feel like for whatever reason, I don't. they just tried harder with the story. And so where I was kind of done with it, by the time we got to House of Frankenstein, I gave that a two. This one felt a lot just a lot more fresh to me. So I give it a 3.5 out of 5. I like this movie, and I am glad that I got to see it. I'm glad that we're doing this series, and I don't know. For me, I think it, there is a major difference night and day between this one and House of Frankenstein. So 3.5. What do you got there, Tim? That's very interesting. A lot of people liked or preferred House of Dracula over the House of Frankenstein. And I I just thought this one was not that great. By the time House of Dracula rolls around, Universal's classic monster movies were already losing their audience. And the studio rushed this film into production once the House of Frankenstein wrapped, which only increased the fatigue of these movies. It was with The House of Frankenstein when the budget for these films were slashed and downgraded from A-movies to B-grade movies and were made specifically as studio cash grabs. House of Dracula would be Universal's final film in their classic monster lineup. And really, the final monster rally film until Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein three years later. And that's not really considered a monster rally film either. That's just considered a Abbott and Costello film. I will say this. I thought House of Dracula started off promising until I met the hunchback assistant named Nina, who replaced hunchback Daniel 
from House of Frankenstein, I suppose a female hunchback was an appropriate replacement for Daniel because of his untimely death in House of Frankenstein. She just didn't really offer much to the film. She wanted a cure just like Hunchback Daniel wanted a cure. Nina is a very sweet woman where Daniel was kind of a dick. (laughs) So seeing Nina as a nice hunchback lady was very interesting. I also thought, and what took me out of the film, was Larry Talbot's transformations into the Wolfman. I thought they looked pretty sloppy in this film. I realize that Lon Chaney Jr. has been incorporating these, like, mouth movements during the transformations as, like, an added effect. He's been doing this for a couple movies now, but I really noticed it this time. I suppose people were questioning the static picture, (laughs) you know, that they would use for, like, a time-lapse transformation. So either it was Lon uh, Chaney Jr. being the, the thespian that he was, or it was a studio head, or it was the director who just said, you know, you ought to move your mouth during these transformations. But I don't think they really thought about the time and precision it would take for them to match those shots after each time they, after each time Jack Pierce would have to apply makeup onto him. You know, of course, what we'd find out later on, or what would come to light later on, is that Lon Chaney Jr. was a crazy alcoholic. Couldn't really sit there and stay still the entire time because it would just drive him insane, kind of like the Wolfman. Again, granted, he's been moving his mouth around for the past two movies now during these transformations, but I notice more of these flaws when that they are actually trying to match the shot after each of the makeup applications. I mean, really, the only impressive special effect is Dracula's transformation into and from the bat form. Uh, It's nothing as crazy over the top fun like the trans the dracula transformation the animated dracula transformations in abnon costello meet frankenstein it's more of like a shadow effect it's it's pretty cool like it just kind of happens but it happens in a very fluid more impressive to watch now you know action because there's no like I mean, of course, you see, like, the string coming down for the bat when the bat flies away, you know. But, I mean, but the transformation into the bat, now the bat is just kind of cool. It's like this really neat fluid shadow effect. And it's impressive to watch now because it probably would have blown me away back in 1945 seeing that. And I also thought it was interesting. And, Matt, maybe you can agree with this or not. But when we finally learned the fate of Dr. Gustav Niemann... Boris Karloff's character from The House of Frankenstein, and then Frankenstein's monster, you know, their their fate after sinking into the quicksand at the end of the last movie. I thought it was interesting that Dr. Neiman is now a skeleton, (laughs) like a full-on clean-looking white skeleton being held onto by the monster, and yet the monster looks exactly the same as he did in the last movie. The same skin, the same hair, the same clothing, and nothing at all was deteriorated. How? I mean, I have no idea. I mean, it made sense that the monster was preserved at the start of the last two movies, you know, at the beginning of the two previous flicks, because he was actually frozen, but... (laughs) I was just going to say embalming fluid. Um, It it does wonders for for everything. No, I mean, honestly... 
it it is probably it was probably just a way to get around i mean it's still 1945 so they're not going to show a dead body and i don't think that they are able to get bella lugosi to come in for one day that's that's all i can think of oh you mean boris karloff sorry boris karloff yeah him too yeah (laughs) also the wolfman got shot in the last movie with the silver bullet that should have just killed him (laughs) and now he's back like that's what i thought was kind of interesting like all the other movies they make it a point (laughs) just gave him the brain swelling yeah, I mean, like, they, they make it a point to to talk about, like, how, how, like, all these characters came back. And yet they kind of do it for Frankenstein's monster, but then it's like, okay, the wolfman survived being shot by the bullet that was specifically designed to fucking kill him in in lore. <laughs> like, that should have done it. You know, I, I mean, I suppose the explanation was needed as John Carradine's Dracula returned, despite being exposed to sunlight and more than likely burned to a crisp, midway through the last movie. <laughs> John Carradine is definitely the more handsome and gentlemanly Dracula and not very showy like Lugosi was, but it's hard for me not to see Bella Lugosi in the role of Dracula, especially since at this time Bella Lugosi is still alive and playing knockoff Dracula parts in other movies. But John Carradine's Dracula has had the absolute worst luck, I think, than all of these characters in all of these movies. Because in House of Frankenstein, Dr. Neiman, played again by Boris Karloff in Daniel the Hunchback, completely screws over John Carradine's Dracula. (laughs) Like, completely screws him over, and they use him as a diversion while in the process killing him. And this happens only 30 minutes into the last film. And then in House of Dracula, not only does he fail to attract and transform Meliza into a, a vampire. He 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 fails to do that to attract a woman, but then he dies again due to sun exposure. Yeah, and then at the end of the movie, you have Frankenstein's monster, you know, who presumably dies while engulfed in flames after being alive for only thirty seconds. He's up walking around for thirty seconds, then he's gone. So this is obviously my least favorite of Universal's classic Wolfman horror flicks. It's boring with little to no excitement until the end of the movie. Dracula possessing Dr. Edelman before dying, causing Edelman to turn evil, like into a a Jekyll and Hyde type of character, was a nice touch. But not enough to reignite and sustain a tired formula. I also didn't like how obvious it was that the studio just didn't care for these movies anymore. They bailed on telling effective stories when the audience began losing interest at the start of World War II. If only they had stuck to their guns, they might have rekindled their audience's appreciation for these monsters that they first began falling in love with 14 years earlier with the original Dracula. And it also didn't help splitting the story into two parts. Dracula's story in the beginning, and the Wolfman's story at the end. I mean, it's basically a retelling of the previous year's The House of Frankenstein. I did, however, enjoy seeing Talbot finally cured, then saving the day by shooting the evil Edelman dead. 
I also like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde approach with Edelman and having Dracula be the cause of it. I mean, there are these like character and story elements like those I just mentioned that makes this entire series of flicks enjoyable to watch. Even the installments that mostly fail, like this one did, it still has tiny, redeemable qualities peppered throughout. Right after this film is complete, Universal dropped Lon Chaney Jr., Glenn Strange, Bela Lugosi, and others from their studio contracts. Since audiences had lost interest in monster movies, and all these actors being typecast as strictly horror actors, the studio had no need for them, as they couldn't be utilized in any other genre film. Though Lon Chaney Jr. was an accomplished actor, and entirely capable of taking on any genre, the studio grew tired of him and his alcoholism. I give House of Dracula a whopping 2 out of 5. So still not that bad. So how about we do uh, She-Wolf of London then? I think that would make the most sense. If anyone tries to avoid questioning by running away, you ought to shoot. Oh, how dreadful. What is it, Carol? A small boy was killed last night in the park near Denham Lane. It seems that the body of the child was horribly mangled. Carol, please! We can't be married, Barry. Ever. I think I understand. You're not going to let me in for the curse of the Allen and all that sort of thing. What happened, sir? She's done me in. She's a... Right, She Wolf of London, 1946, film noir crime horror film produced by Universal Studios, directed by Gene Yarbrough, starring June Lockhart and Don Porter. Now, the title evokes the earlier Werewolf of London, but this one is definitely a mystery suspense thriller, and it is not really supernatural horror. What we have here is uh, Phyllis Allenby, who is this beautiful woman who's about to get married to her boyfriend. Barry is his name. And Phyllis lives at the Allenby Mansion, and so she's got um, her Aunt Martha, who lives with her, and Carol, who is like a cousin or a sister or something. I can't remember. It's been a, it's been a little bit since I've seen this one. It's her cousin, and, and the old woman is her aunt. Okay, so that, yeah, I knew that. The, yeah, I knew the old woman was the aunt. I couldn't remember if that was a cousin or a sister or whatever. But anyway, yeah. So the daughter of the aunt, Carol. Uh, I'm sorry. Good Lord. <sighs> Aunt Martha has a daughter. Her name's Carol. Carol is Phyllis's cousin. Hey! This is important. <laughs> this is important by the end of the movie. At any rate, there is a killer going after all of these men and people in the park over by her home. And where she's already, where poor Phyllis already thinks that there's a curse of the Allenbees out there anyway. And so... She is concerned that she might be the killer. She's like, am I turning into some kind of wolf, into she-wolf at night and killing these people? And she really starts to think as the course of the movie carries on that she might be doing this. And 
yet there are others around her who either um, who are suspicious of her or like come on you're being stupid and her boyfriend's like hey come on we'll be all right don't worry about it you know your your alan b curse thing is dumb and shenanigans ensue will poor phyllis find out if she is the she-wolf is there another she-wolf what could possibly be going on all right honestly i really like that this is actually a nice twist on the old werewolf thing because it's not really about a werewolf but it uses a lot of the similar horror elements and the thriller elements that we saw going into what became the wolfman genre from uh, from before i think this is a I think it's really, actually really well acted movie. If I remember, June Lockhart actually goes on to be the mom in Lassie. So there's that. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good movie overall. I think it's a really solid entry. I thought it was well acted and I really liked the twist on everything. And, and it's an, honestly, after all the other monster stuff that we've been watching in the heavy duty uh, monster, you know, werewolf stuff. Wolfman stuff. This was a nice break from that. Uh, I give this one 3.5 out of 5 as well. Tim. She-Wolf of London is a very interesting flick. It's not a traditional horror flick at all. Um, it's a little bit deceiving. And it was my first time seeing this one in preparation for the show. So it was a, it was a welcome change to the formula. I enjoyed it. It was more of like a psychological thriller in a way. Uh, yet it still does have incredibly dated characters in it, like the British inspector from Scotland Yard who automatically suspects that what is killing these people in the park late at night is a werewolf. Well, why does this inspector automatically think it's a uh, werewolf that is responsible for the murders? Like, has he encountered a werewolf before? So I was just waiting for there to be some kind of like weird connection between this film, between She-Wolf of London and like the Wolfman, like Larry Talbot's name was going to come up at some point and interconnect somehow. This is a good example, this character, which a lot of people enjoyed the inspector when I was doing some research. And they thought he was just more of like a fun, enjoyable character. But it was just kind of like, it doesn't really make any sense when you have all these other interestingly well-written smartish characters that are in in the forefront or because then you also have like all the other cops the constables that are stationed throughout the park trying to catch the killer and whenever they hear something they just kind of quickly walk over there's no running there's no sense of urgency it's kind of like little goofy british things like that i mean i like to think that some brits actually run and would like to help quickly get somebody to a hospital, perhaps. I don't know. But it's, again, a pleasant and welcome change to the werewolf genre that's competently made and wonderfully acted, for the most part. And the story focusing more on the psychological effects than the more traditionally fantastical way that the previous Wolfman flicks were told. And this movie does feature not a single transformation or any werewolf makeup whatsoever, adding to the overall mystery of there actually being a murderous werewolf on the loose 
or if there's not actually a murderous werewolf on the loose. Really, I enjoyed the mystery that shrouds the story, making the audience think that maybe the identity of the werewolf is actually the cousin or the aunt. Maybe even Phyllis, the main woman here, is actually insane, and the sound of the howling or the barking outside in the middle of the night acts as her murderous trigger. Like, that's what turns into her killer. Not necessarily a werewolf, but just a, a murderer. You know, just hearing the wolves. But man, that twist at the end with Aunt Martha, turns out she's evil, was well worth the hour. <laughs> the hour runtime of this movie is well worth it. You know, she has a plan to drive her niece Phyllis insane so that her own daughter, Carol, could marry Phyllis's fiancé, Barry, a man that's in a much higher class than the other man that Cousin Phyllis is currently seeing, apparently. Overall, the flick was... was good. It was entertaining, you know, particularly the story elements that really didn't have time to become super ridiculous because I can totally see some of these plot twists become, you know, like, like dumb. If the movie was your traditional hour and a half to two hour, uh, uh, running time, these more outrageous moments in the final act just pop up, slaps the audience right across the face and moves on. And I'm surprised, frankly, by all the negativity thrown at this film. People just couldn't get over the fact that you'd never see a werewolf transformation. And that the title itself apparently is too misleading. But it's totally not misleading. What makes this film unique is that what's actually going on is far more sinister and scarier than it actually turning out to be a werewolf attacking people. So I was able to look past all the goofiness, all the things that date the movie, all the side characters, all the the earlier motivations that really didn't make any, you know, a, a whole lot of sense. And some of the obvious things that kind of give away the ending twist of the film, some things that are said earlier on. I was able to look past that and just enjoy the movie for what it was, because this was billed as a film that only adults should see at the theater. And up until this point, these Wolfman movies, these monster movies, were made for kids especially, kids and adults. But kids loved these films. And this would have been, I think, more scarring for a child than any other Wolfman movie. Because of that, I enjoyed it. I give this a 3.5 out of 5 as well. All right, well then let us wrap it up with 1948's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. Come on, take it all out. Now! Bring out, Chick! Cover up! Savannah, cover up! Wait a minute! The nation's top comics, Abbott and Costello. Petrified, but hilariously. Dangerous and terrifying Wolf Man, played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. Plus the most dreaded creature of them all, the Frankenstein Monster, played by Glenn Strange. 
plus a couple of luscious but designing females in the spookiest laugh fest on record. It's a horror comedy film directed by Charles Barton, starring the comedy team, of course, of Abbott and Costello, Bud Abbott, Lou Costello, Lon Chaney Jr., Bela Lugosi, and Glenn Strange. Well, I guess we should also say that there we've got uh, Lenore Aubert, Jane Rudolph as well, Frank Ferguson's in there, and a special cameo, Vince Vincent Price. It's uncredited, but still important. And Charles Bradstreet's in there as well. Now, this is your general Abbott and Costello idea where they're lower working class guys they're working stiffs who end up in just the most extraordinary circumstances in this particular instance it's a florida railway station and they are baggage clerks and of course who should call them but lawrence talbot says oh my god there's stuff coming you've got to be careful and then as i noted before it's plot device time he turns into the Wolfman, and now they can hear him destroying stuff on the other end of the phone. They just think it's a prank call. This, of course, leads to them getting these items that they're coming in from freight, which are Dracula's coffin and the actual body of the Frankenstein's monster. And typical shenanigans ensue where ultimately they are now trying to get poor Wilbur, who is, of course, played by Costello, and he is going to ultimately become the brain behind the monster. Nervous, my dear? This is risky business. Not as risky as those curious operations of yours that so intrigued the European police. Yet, much more profitable. Restore the monster for me, and you shall have anything you wish. In that case, we better start as soon as possible. It's dangerous to leave him in this weakened condition. Have you mastered Dr. Frankenstein's notebook? Let me get my hand on a scalpel again, and you shall see. And about the brain. I don't want to repeat Frankenstein's mistake and revive a vicious, unmanageable brute. This time the monster must have no will of his own, no fiendish intellect to oppose his master. There, my dear Count, I believe I have exceeded your fondest wishes. The new brain I've chosen for the monster is so simple, so pliable. He will obey you like a trained dog. We've got Bella Lugosi as the is Count Dracula. You've got Glenn Strange again as Frankenstein's monster, and Lon Chaney as Lon Chaney Jr. as Wolfman, so on and so forth. Now, this movie for me is just I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. It's one of my favorite Abbott and Costello movies, mainly because it mashes up all the things that I thought of when I re- when I think of classic horror, even as a kid, and all of the things that I found funny. Because I was raised on a very steady diet of early comedy. I mean, one of the very first comedy movies that I can remember sit- sitting down to watch is Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn's Bringing a Baby. It's one of my very first comedy movies. And some of the earliest comedy routines that I ever watched, again, like Abbott and Costello with Who's on First. And so it's, so I'm very, very hard on comedy today. It's hard for me to find a sitcom that I like. It's really hard for me to find a comedy movie that I like because I have seen the greats doing their stuff. 
And so I absolutely just enjoy this movie. Now, it is completely cliched on the horror end, but they do it not to be cliched on its own because it's not really supposed to be a horror movie anymore. It's really supposed to be a comedy movie. This was meant to drive Abbott and Costello, not drive the big three of the Universal. Even still, it's funny and it works and it's great late 40s comedy. This is definitely great, great, great Abbott and Costello work. And this is often considered to be... I was looking this up, looking around, found some stuff even on Wikipedia. This is literally considered to be the swan song for the horror monsters, for the original three, for Frankenstein's monster, for Dracula, and for Wolfman. And there's a reason for that. It's because they really nailed the timing, the comedic timing for Abbott and Costello. So even though they're using the horror side as a plot device, and really that's all they are, it's okay because they make it work. I give this one a four out of five. Really enjoy this movie, even to this day. And I would suggest anybody see it, especially if you have, like, my kids are scaredy cats. You could start them on this movie, and I really think that you could get them into it. Four out of five. Bring us home there, Tim. Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein is one of Universal's biggest box office draws the year it was released. Originally titled The Brain of Frankenstein, the studio was worried that audiences would think that the movie was going to be another campy monster rally flick. The title was then changed to Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein to inform the audience that they can expect comedy and horror, but mainly comedy. The man's been hurt. Looks like something attacked him. Get a doctor. He'll be all right. Another half inch would have severed your jugular vein. Kidding. Who did it? It was somebody in a wolf's mask. McDougal, what happened to you? Why? You. It was you. He said he was going to get me. Me? That's right. I saw him arguing with you earlier this evening. Oh, that's ridiculous. Why, I wouldn't even... Oh, people, real-life people. That's... That's a boy. Tell him. You, chick. What's the matter? What was the idea trying to take a bite out of me? Huh? What was the idea? Now you. What did you take about out of you two? What's the matter with you, chick? You going mad or something? Wilbur! Don't let that little fella fool you. He's an accomplice. Me! Let's call the sheriff. Larry Talbot plays a fairly large role in this flick. He aids Chick and Wilbur, played by Abbott and Costello, attempting to keep Frankenstein's monster and Dracula at bay. The movie even opens with Larry Talbot warming Wilbur of the dangers lingering within the boxes located in their shipping facility. And of course, those shipping boxes contain Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. Baggage room. London. Calling here? Uh, St. Collect, is it? Uh-huh. All right, put him on. Hello? Do you have two crates addressed to the McDougal House of Horrors? Uh, what's the number on the checks? Oh, never mind that. Tonight the moon will be full here. I haven't much time. Now listen closely. I'm flying out of here at dawn. Under no circumstances are you to deliver those crates until I arrive. Understand? Under... Ready. Mr. McDougal, will you stop gargling your throat? 
have to get your dog away from the phone. I can't hear a word you're saying. You're awful silly to call me all the way from London just to have your dog talk to me. That's a fine conversation. A guy growls like a wolf. The nerve of some people. Neither Abbott or Costello wanted to make this movie. They thought the story to be childish in a mess. Despite their lack of interest, they still put forth everything they got into their performances, which is evident in the final product. Director Charles Barton probably had a lot to do with it because he got along incredibly well with Bud and Lou. Barton had their trust and allowed them to experiment with gags, and he let them do virtually anything on the set to keep their energy up, which is reflected in their high-energy performances. One way how Abbott and Costello kept their energy up between takes and the mood onset light and fun was by spontaneously having pie fights, or seltzer water fights, between $3,800 and $4,800 in pies were kept on set, as the crew never knew when a pie fight would begin. Sometime after the film came out, Lon Chaney Jr. admitted to thinking that Abbott and Costello single-handedly ruined monster movies by making the monster characters there to be laughed at. This was, of course, not the case. In regard to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, though the main focus is on Bud and Lou, the monsters play key roles in the film and they stay true to their already established characteristics and lore. Audiences aren't laughing at the monsters because they are bumbling buffoons, they're laughing at the situations that the two actual buffoons, Abbott and Costello, get themselves in. There are even a couple moments when Dracula reacts to these ridiculous situations, like when Dracula first awakens and rolls his eyes at Costello, or when he later drops a subtle fat joke at Costello's expense. The comedy and horror elements within the film are handled incredibly well. Both elements are well-balanced, with one never trumping the other. Sandra, I've just got to tell you, I was downstairs in the basement. Basement? And what were you doing down there? I opened the door. Uh, he opened the door and fell down the stairs. How careless. You should be careful. A person can get killed that way. I hope you weren't disturbed, Dr. Leho. It is perfectly right, my dear. Introduce me. This is Miss Raymond, Mr. Young, and this is Wilbur. Oh, Wilbur, why? I heard so much about you, I feel as if we have already met. I must say, my dear, I approve very highly of your choice. What we need today is young blood and brains. Oh, don't be bashful. Come. Hello, Dr. Leos. I've been looking for you all day. Now, every time I ask Dr. Mornay what that equipment's going to be used for, she says to ask you. Of course. Uh, didn't I hear that you were going to masquerade ball? Well, yes, we have our costumes out in the boat. Ah, oh, you young people. Making the most of life while it lasts. And in speaking of Dracula, 
Bella Lugosi, surprisingly, wasn't even Universal's first or second choice to play the character. John Carradine, who played the role in the previous two House of Flicks, was busy doing a stage show and Ian Keith was going to be cast. But Lugosi, who at the time was deep in debt and desperate for work, pretty much begged the studio for the job. Lugosi ultimately got the part, possibly taking the role from Ian Keith, who, of course, was Lugosi's main competition during casting for the original 1931 Dracula flick. Universal let go of Jack Pierce, the makeup artist responsible for creating the look of the Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster, and other Universal classic monsters, and Universal promoted Jack Pierce's makeup assistant, Bud Westmore. Westmore pioneered the use of foam rubber for creature makeup in the making of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. He pioneered the use of foam rubber to save time. Lon Chaney Jr. was particularly happy about the departure of the notoriously old-fashioned Jack Pierce. With Pierce, Chaney would spend four hours every day in the makeup chair while having individual samples of hair applied, but with Westmore's modern techniques, makeup and hair application would only take about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Watching this film now, I find it to be one of the ultimate family comedies. There are just plenty of well-executed physical gags to keep all audiences, old and young, laughing. And then a handful of innuendos and more mature elements to keep the interest of the adults. I was surprised to see that all of the monsters died at the end of the film. The Wolfman sacrifices himself to kill Dracula, and Frankenstein's monster gets engulfed in flames. And there are no quick cuts. The audience actually sees these deaths happen. Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein would go on to be Universal's biggest box office hit that year. Its success would shoot Abbott and Costello back into the top of the box office performers, spawning four more Abbott and Costello Meet, insert name of a horror character here, movies. The studio spared no expense when making Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, and you see nothing but quality in the final product. Bud Abbott shines as one of the best straight men in the business, and Lou Costello plays scared with satisfyingly silly results. Only Lou Costello could make skipping across a room one of the top highlights of a movie. I mean, that's just a fact. The sets were large and beautifully detailed, very much like how the monsters were treated in the film. The sets were made to look authentic and stayed true to how they would have looked in the original Wolfman or Frankenstein films. Director Charles Barton and crew also incorporated some very interesting subtle visuals like when you see the moonlight creeping into the room triggering Larry Talbot's first werewolf transformation. There's also Dracula's transformation, which was accomplished using animation, making for a pretty cool morphing effect. The flick's box office success didn't mean continued success for all those involved. This would be Bela Lugosi's final major studio picture, appearing in C and D grade pictures like those he did with Ed Wood until his death in 1956. Lon Chaney Jr. felt that he suffered 
for his art, both because of the hours spent in makeup during the course of five films, which featured him as the Wolfman, and the constant pressure of having to live up to his father's, Lon Chaney Sr., reputation. This is the root cause of Chaney Jr.'s ongoing drinking problem, which, when provoked while drunk, would release his inner demons, resulting in loud and, and violent outbursts. When sober, Lon was a nice and pleasant as anybody else, as anybody else on set could have been. And he admitted to having a problem. And it was rumored that during the filming of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein that he would try to cure his alcoholism by going out into the desert and drinking hallucinatory cactus juice. Lon would never beat his addiction, though, or overcome the effects planted by his sadist of a father many years before. A few weeks after rapping Meet Frankenstein, he would swallow 40 sleeping pills with the intention of committing suicide, and he almost succeeded. When Cheney Jr. finally did die of heart failure 25-some-odd years later, Glenn Strange would be only one of Lon's co-stars to honor him in various appearances and interviews, despite losing his own battle with lung cancer. Overall, this movie is just wonderful, and I, it's just sad to think that we're never going to see these monster characters again, especially the character of, of the Wolfman, though Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman has appeared in a TV show and a variety show as well, I believe. But I'm glad we have this, and I'm glad we have all the other flicks. I give Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein a 4.5 out of 5. It's a wonderful film. Obviously, Universal put money behind this film. You can see it again in the sets, in the performances. Like, luckily, it went from B-grade movies up until this film, and it was a Hollywood A-grade Universal flick. So 4.5 out of 5. Highly recommend it. Please check it out. I know a couple theaters right now before Halloween are doing a couple special showings. So if it's playing around you, give it a shot. Right on, right on. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the movies for this week. Next week's movies are going to be Halloween 2018's version, of course. And then we also have Ginger Snaps, The Company of Wolves, The Curse of the Werewolf, and... Uh, that's gonna be all. That's right. So Ginger Snaps from 2001, Company of Wolves from 1984, and The Curse of the Werewolf from 1961. Those movies are all gonna be, of course, uh, VOD flicks, and Halloween will be, the 2018 version of Halloween will be the theater flick for next week. And without further ado, I guess it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, Stewardess! I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's it's a cutting cutting say cutting say 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 Chomp don't want to help. Chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang. Say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Well, 
music you've been listening to as always has been brought to you by music partners Cries of Solace you can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com both slash Cries of Solace as for us we are of course the SLS cast you can find us at SLScast.com you can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com you can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast you can follow me this is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345 you can of course come aboard that information superhighway track down to on Twitter if that's your heart's desire don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud and the other podcast directory if you'd like to support the show please 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 head on over to patreon.com and check us out there so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to cynthia arrivo i get to say this i love that i can demonstrate that it's okay to look and be strong take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week madam perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.